What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Idea Space. I'm Yancy Strickler. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Heather McGee, an economic policy expert and the author of a fantastic new book called The Sum of Us. In 2016, something extraordinary happened to Heather on live TV. It was a call-in show on C-SPAN. Heather was the guest, and she was talking about tax policy when a man called in. I was hoping that your guest could help me change my mind about some things. Um, I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. And the reason it is, it's something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. Um, when I open up the papers, I get very discouraged at what young black males are doing to each other and the, the crime rates. I understand that they live in an environment with a lot of drugs. You have to get money for drugs. And, and it, it's a deep issue that goes beyond that. But when I have these different fears, and I don't want my fears to come true, you know, so I try to avoid that. And I, and I come off as being prejudice, but I just have fears. I don't like to be forced to like people. I like to be led to like people through example. And what can I do to change, you know, to be a better American? Heather McGee. Thank you so much for being honest um, and for opening up this conversation because it's simply one of the most important ones we have to have in this country. You know, we are not a country that is united um, because we are all one racial group that all descended from one uh, tribe in one community. That is actually, uh, I think, what makes this country beautiful, but it's our challenge. We are the most multiracial, multi-ethnic, uh, wealthy democracy in the world. And so asking the question you ask, how do I get over my fears and my prejudices, is the question that all of us, and I will say people of all races and ethnicities and backgrounds hold these fears and prejudices. Most of them are actually unconscious, right? You'll say to yourself, I'm not prejudiced, but of course we all have them. And so your ability to just say, this is what I have, I have these fears and prejudices and I want to get over them is one of the most powerful things that we can do right now at this moment in our history. So thank you. This week marks the publication of The Sum of Us, Heather's incredible first book about the economic cost of racism and a lot more. The book bounces between extremely well-argued research, calling on her background as an economist and a lawyer, as well as on-the-ground reporting that reads like a novel. I tore through this book, it was so good, and I cannot recommend it enough. And Heather's impact on the world is significant. As she talks about in this interview ahead, her ideas and her language are showing up in Joe Biden's speeches. Her ideas have been made laws, and she's a real behind-the-scenes force, as well as a prominent one. She's on Meet the Press often, and, and this book is going to be a big deal. I'm honored to call Heather a friend, and I know you're going to love our conversation. Here she is. We we know each other in that New York way of you you bump into each other at places and you know just sort of randomly know each other um, from rolling in the same scenes and you know I've, I've always enjoyed you uh, so much and and I'm I'm so excited to be talking on the event of the publication of your first book the Sum of Us which is absolutely amazing like mm. I I I just tore through it mm. incredible book and and with you now as 
a regular on Meet the Press as a behind the scenes force in democratic politics, especially you know racial inequalities, racial and economic inequalities. Uh, and you've had a kid, um, all this since I, we last seen each other. So my first thing to say is just, whoa, <laughs> how's it going? How you doing? Oh, thanks, Yancy. Um, I have so enjoyed our times together, our long meandering conversations and how much fun we have, and I miss it. Um, I'm doing well because, um, you know, I've been pretty obsessed with some core questions around race, inequality, and democracy, and a and a somewhat counter um, intuitive or sort of counter conventional wisdom um, analysis of of what's really driving politics and our economic dysfunction in America, and it really does feel like the last couple of years has been just a litany of examples of me being onto something. And so that feels right. And I'm excited about things becoming a new consensus that people can then use to break through and move beyond our stale divides. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I think like all of us, I'm grieving, you know, we're losing thousands of people a day to a disease that could be contained and prevented. Um, that some of those same forces in our politics are stopping us from being able to really, you know, contain. Um, particularly the Black community is is hurting so badly, and so many people are losing people. Um, and I miss other human beings who are not my immediate family. You know, I love strangers, and I can't touch them, and I can't hold them, and I can't, you know, clink a glass with them. And it's 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 not the way we're supposed to be. So, like everybody, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm struggling with that. I'm, th- I'm thinking about another friend of mine who's a such a people person, and how you know that's someone I, who I know who've, who's really struggled during this pandemic, and you know, kind of people who were who are more, you know, emotionally attuned, who are, who are more personable, you know, are some ways people that I think have had a harder time uh, with what this has actually been. Yeah. I mean, I'm a true extrovert. My son, um, it's been so funny to see him become who he's going to be and recognize these aspects of both, you know, me and my, um, my husband and them and him. The on the seventh, right, November seventh, which was the day it was announced that Joe Biden was had won the election. We were in Brooklyn. It was also my husband's birthday, and we were, you know, at the playground, and people just started honking, and it was this, this amazing moment of collective ebullience. And we sort of stayed out in the street until midnight, and my son was so happy. It was like me at my first big dance party, you know? I, I just saw in his eyes the way he was just sort of like rolling with joy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he has actually not known mm-hmm. this for, you know, he's two years old. So he's only known his community under somewhat of a shroud for the first year of his life. And then the second year of his life was this terrible thing, this pandemic on top of the political crisis. And So to have him be sort of just running around in, you know, we were in front of Spike Lee's um, studio in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and Spike was, you know, preaching to the crowd and we were all dancing and everybody had masks on and everything, but he was just, he would like get lost in the crowd for like minutes at a time because he was just so happy. And I was like, all right, this is my son. He needs people. He gets the energy. It was great. 
So beautiful. So beautiful. So to talk about the book, I, I thought maybe we could start by talking about the phone call you got live on TV in 2016. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So as you said, Yancy, I, I work in economic policy. And at that time in 2016, I was the president of a think tank called Demos. It's the Greek word for the people of a nation and the root word of democracy. And I was on a C-SPAN television program called Washington Journal, um, answering live questions from callers who were mainly talking about asking me questions about taxes and trade and student debt, the economic issues of the day that I was on to talk about. But about halfway through the program, a man called in and identified himself as Gary from North Carolina. And he said, I'm prejudiced. He said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. And again, this is live TV, right? So I just sort of gulp and I'm like, okay, where are we going here? <laughs> what is that about to happen? <laughs> um, and then he goes on to detail his prejudice and talk about, you know, black men and drugs and gangs and crime. And of course, I'm like sinking deeper into my chair. And then he says something that was just astonishing. He said, but I want to change. And I want to know what your guest, which was me, can tell me I could do to become a better American. And something about the vulnerability in his question and, and, and the way he sort of linked overcoming bias with becoming a better American, which is a really, you know, it's, it's my definition, right? Um, but it's not the dominant definition, <laughs> um, really touched me. And so instead of kind of, um, you know, being um, confrontational with him, um, I just said, thank you for admitting your bias and for, um, you know, asking to change. Um, and I then told him off the top of my head, just some ideas about what I thought he could do to sort of integrate his life and, um, and minimize the amount of, you know, incoming, right. Which I think is really the issue, right. We have so much packaged marketed hate and stereotypes and degradations of people at the lower rungs of the social and economic hierarchy, that it's it's kind of hard for someone who consumes that kind of media or comes from that culture to not develop prejudices, right? And so um, anyway, it was just his question and my answer. And that clip online went viral. It's got like millions and millions of views now. Um, and then I got to know Gary from North Carolina. He, he jumped on Twitter and find, found me. And his first tweet was, how does this thing work? <laughs> and and I and I I messaged him and we talked on the phone and you know we've since hung out you know half a dozen times um, and he's been on this journey and it's been so interesting to see these moments of real clarity um, and rejection of the kind of white racist narrative and then moments when he slips back into it and when you know it's just like it's the sea around him right it's. Mm -hmm you know, particularly in the Trump era, it's just, he didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I don't know if he voted for Trump in 2020. He definitely, um, you know, started to fall for some of the lies, right? He started to fall for some of the voter fraud lies. He started, right? It's just, it's so hard not to fall for the disinformation. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, particularly if you're a white middle-aged man living in rural America and that's kind of their, their target audience, right? And they reach them. So, so you were at Demos for a long time, 16 yeah. years, I think, 17 yeah. years. Yeah. Um, so can you, can you tell us about what, what were you doing? What, what kind of job is that that you were doing? That is such a good question. Um, Cause it's a little inscrutable, right? What is a think tank? Do you sit in a tank and think, what do you, what do you do? Um, um, we, uh, we did research, um, we did research on big economic problems and problems in our society. Um, the issue that I worked on the most for the first decade of my career was the issue of debt, of personal debt, of household debt, credit cards, mortgages, payday loans, the ways in which families, particularly in the 2000s, were borrowing to make ends meet. A deregulated financial sector was, you know, using lots of new tricks and traps to offer people credit that working families needed, right? I mean, there was just not enough um, paycheck, you know, at the end of the month for tens of millions of people. And, um, but, you know, it was really predatory practices in terms of once you were in debt. And so, you know, we'd study the problem, we'd study the practices, we would use a lot of, you know, national data to illuminate the problem, and then we would advocate Um, go to Washington, show our research to policymakers, tell them that they should um, change the laws regulating the financial system to make credit available but fair. And we tried very hard to sound the alarm, for example, about the subprime mortgage crisis that was targeting particularly Black communities and homeowners in the early 2000s. And we saw what was happening. We saw these astronomical rates being you know, really aggressively marketed to people who actually qualified for regular affordable rates. Um, And we saw that they were winding up in foreclosure. We saw that the money machine that was coming in in terms of Wall Street really wanting to get more and more mortgages to repackage and sell. Just it was so clear based on the data that we were seeing. And yet our warnings really fell on deaf ears. And, you know, there are moments like that. Then there are moments like when we, you know, got a bill passed in Washington to regulate the credit card industry that had a bunch of consumer protections that we designed. And that was great, right? It was always, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, but it's it's very satisfying work because you do feel like if you do the right thing at the right time, you can change the lives of millions of people. And, and you were there in designing these laws, designing the the triggers, designing the way these things were. were I mean, you're working with other colleagues, but you're a part of like that that nitty gritty of, uh, of that part of the work. Yeah. Which was so, so, so fun. I mean, I, I, um, I really love thinking about the way systems operate and how little levers that you can pull here can have such incredible downstream effects and, and really trying to distill, um, what is the right policy for the right problem? Because it's not like we're putting government in places where it isn't right the rules of our market are everywhere. And it's just a question of, you know, in whose advantage, um, to whose advantage they accrue. And so um, it's, 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 it's in many ways, it's like seeing the bones, you know, of, of a body, right? It's like, how does this all add up? How does, how does the, the leg work when you lift it? How does, you know, how do, how does everything sort of move together um, in synchronicity? And, a well-designed policy regime is a really beautiful thing. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sounding so dorky. But it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. <laughs> we're here for the dork. Uh, so, so by 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 2016, 2017, you were you were the head of Demos. Yeah, yeah. And and in in your book, you write about after Trump's election, quote, the inadequacy of the tool I was bringing, economic policy research, felt painfully obvious. Contrary to how I was being taught to think about economics, everybody wasn't operating in their rational economic self-interest. The majority of white Americans had voted for a worldview not supported by a different set of numbers than I had, but by a fundamentally different story about how the economy works, about race and government, about who belongs and who deserves, about how we got here and what the future holds. And this story was more powerful than cold economic calculations. So I, I found that phrase really striking. The, inadequ- the inadequacy of the tool you were bringing felt painfully obvious. Was there a moment? Like, can you talk about that feeling and what was going on for you? You end up leaving Demos around this time, but w- what was happening for you then? I think I had I had been a, a class person, as you can tell, meaning like I think about class inequalities, right? I'm trying to address economic inequality and insecurity and bad economic policy decisions. And in that, if you have that lens, if you're working on that, the affected group of people is quite large, right? It's most white Americans, most people of color, right? It's 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 a really multiracial coalition. Everybody, you know, needs to see a doctor. Everybody needs to pay their rent or their mortgage. Everybody needs childcare, right? Everybody needs to get through college without going into crushing debt, right? These are really, you know, on a certain level, they're sort of colorblind, or at least they're not never colorblind, but they're universal, nearly universal, except for the very wealthy issues. And so in many ways, there was a sense of, okay, if this is a representative democracy and I say that the majority of American students are now going into unaffordable debt to get a degree, whereas 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. And every other country is not doing this. And it's bad for home ownership. It's bad for retirement security. It's just a bad way to start these young people's lives. Then, you know, it's affecting the majority of Americans. It's a bad economic policy decision to move from grants to loans and to underfund public colleges. So you would think we would do the right thing. But our politics, even under Clinton and under Obama, were so cramped and confined by the sort of tyranny of the white moderate, right? Of the fiscally conservative, but perhaps a little bit socially liberal, white moderate, whom both parties, at least for a time, were really sort of hewing to. It was more like the Democratic Party was hewing to the the fiscal conservative, white, uh, social liberal, white moderate, and then the you know Republican Party was hewing to the white conservative. And so that meant that honestly, like what white people thought about what was right and what was fair and and the way that we should order the economy was having an outsized impact on policy outcomes for white people and also for people of color. And I thought, I guess somewhat naively, that if we like brought the data to the decision makers, they would feel free to make the changes. But ultimately, it seemed pretty clear that unless white people agreed that it was a good idea, we weren't going to do it. 
And I thought that because this issue is now impacting 63, let's keep talking about student loan debt, for example, is now impacting 63% of white people, white students, that it should be in their self-interest and we should fix it, right? We should we should not do this this thing that is is a really bad economic policy idea, this student debt for diploma system. And yet that sort of conservative to moderate ethos was saying no to government, no to relief for working families. All we want is tax cuts. All we want is, you know, to control the deficit. There was just no sense of we should be responsive to what is happening at kitchen tables across the country, even though they were ha- it was happening at the kitchen tables in white households. And then when Donald Trump won, bringing all of that subtext that was really like a matter of debate on, in the Democratic Party and among progressives, you know, how much is race really playing an issue in this? Most progressives don't know that no Democratic presidential candidate has won the white vote since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, right? That there's, they don't, there's not, there wasn't for a long time an awareness of just how racially polarized our system had become and how, you know, the majority of white people are Republicans and Republican voting independents. And that is not an accident. That's not about math. It's about art, right? It's about music. It's about the emotional notes that are cohering a sense of identity that is on the defense in a changing society. And of course, Trump brought that all into the fore. And I thought, you know what? Demos is in a good place. Our ideas are kind of ascendant, you know, among democratic policymakers and lawmakers, which was sort of the goal, right? To sort of move the democratic party into, into some people say the left, but I say into the future. And Yet there's this other thing. And my call with Gary, Gary's not a character in my book, The Sum of Us, but but my ability to reach him, to be audible to this racist white guy and to make this connection and then to have, you know, tens of millions of people share it and feel the same, that there was this sort of connection I could make across our oldest divide made me feel like, actually, I have something to do say about our mutual interest in eradicating racism and how racism has a cost for everyone. And so I went on a journey across the country to write this book over the past three years. Yeah. And and you write, racism drains the public pool of America. Public goods are seen as worthy of investment only as long as the public is seen as good. So can, can you talk about the drained pools? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just... Um, it's just one of those astonishing things. It's a, it's a story that I grew up with. It was sort of talked about in my family. Um, and I think in the black community, it's, it's sort of almost like a fable, although it's very, very true. Um, but over the course of the 20th century, the early 20th century, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the country went on a building boom of, public pools. And these were not like your backyard pool. These were big, grand resort style public pools that could hold hundreds, even thousands of swimmers. And they were, you know, this, this kind of um, charming um, commitment of the government to 
what we now know to be the sort of American dream level of leisure life, right? The idea that people could count on government to provide not just the necessities as it really had in the New Deal, but also, you know, the things that make life good, the good life. And it was also an Americanizing project for, you know, tens of millions of white ethnic immigrants who were, it was sort of like a literal melting pot, right? It was a bath temperature melting pot um, to cohere a sense of, of sort of collective and shared values and, and shared culture. And yet, like much of the New Deal and like much of government largesse at this time, it was for whites only in many parts of the country, not just in the American South. And in the 1950s, um, Black communities began to say, you know, this is uh, a public benefit, a public good that is paid for with public tax dollars, including our own. And so we and our children deserve to swim in it too. And as the courts began to decide with Black communities, towns across the country, and again, I want to stress this, not just in the South, decided to drain their public pools rather than let Black families swim too. They literally backed up trucks, poured dirt in, paved it over, seeded it with grass. By the time the summer came along, it was green. I I walked the grounds of one of these sites, this beautiful park in the middle of Montgomery, Alabama, that used to have a huge, gorgeous resort-style pool. It had a zoo. And as soon as integration was threatened, the town closed the park sold off the animals in the zoo. In fact, closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department, filled in the pool, and the Parks and Recreation Department of Montgomery, Alabama stayed closed for a decade. Like, no parks for you. No senior centers, no recreation, no pools, nothing for anybody because we don't want to share it. And even when a decade later, so now we're nearly 1970, they finally reopened the Parks and Recreation Department, but they never rebuilt the pool, right? It's this sort of big, empty park, which is, you know, lovely, but it's not a place where people meet and gather. That was replicated across the country. And in the book, I make this connection between the literal pool and then the pool of resources, you really see this break in the civil rights era in the mid-1960s. 1965 was the year that our tax dollars, um, that our tax revenue as a society was was the highest per capita, right? Um, once it was clear that the tax dollars were going to be going to not just white people, the tax, you know, the invest the benefits of tax dollars were going to be tax investment was going to go not just to white people, you know, we started cutting taxes. Um there's an unbelievable statistic I found that, you know, given what I was saying about the sort of tyranny of the white moderate was just mind blowing to me, but that in the late 1950s and early 1960s, two thirds of white Americans thought that we ought to have a job guarantee and a universal basic income. Hmm. And it's like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? Like, where are those white people now? What are you talking about? You know, like what? And it was, they were New Deal white folks, right? They were folks who had benefited from strong government investments and benefits and, and expected the same. And between 1960 and 1964, right, this is a four, every four-year survey, 
the white support for those ideas, job guarantee, minimum income, dropped in half from nearly 70% to 35%. And it's stayed low ever since. What happened between 1960 and 1964? You had the March on Washington, where of the 10 demands, two of them were those same demands about you know, a huge jobs program and a minimum income. You had the Democrats become the party of civil rights with Kennedy and then Johnson. And, you know, by the next election cycle, white people would leave the Democratic Party, you know, to this day forever. So you, you talk about sort of this myth of zero sum mm-hmm. and and you present it as a myth created by the wealthy to prevent common people from finding common cause together. Yeah. And you contrast zero sum with a phrase you use many times of a solidarity dividend. So can you tell me what what are those two things? What's the zero sum world and what's the solidarity dividend world? The zero sum is this dominant worldview that researchers are finding is the dominant worldview of white Americans today, where there's this idea that There's only so much to go around and progress for people of color has to come at white people's expense, right? It's this zero sum competition. A dollar in my pocket means a dollar out of your pocket. Um, And that's an idea that really helps explain why it is that there'd be this sort of ferocious, you know, cheering on of denying benefits and you know, decent standards of living and help for the people you see as, you know, your competition. You're so worried about their gain because you assume it has to be your loss. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's actually not like a natural way of thinking, particularly not within a country, right? We should be sort of cheering on more Americans having better quality of life. And in fact, it, it was the way white people felt, um, you know, for much of uh, our history that, you know, we did want the government to do a lot of great things for us. We did want corporations to pay people high wages. We wanted all of that, right? That was sort of the the ethos. And yet it fell apart in the civil rights movement. And so I said, you know what, let me, let me go back, right? Where does this idea come from? It's not, it's not an idea that's held by people of color as strongly as it's held by white people. So where did it come from? And the first chapter of the book does a very short kind of prehistory to today of how the zero-sum racial hierarchy was invented in the colonial era to justify our first economic policy in this country, which was stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor. And to basically convince the you know white masses that they had a stake in maintaining the racial order and that because the the brutal economic system was about, I will gain and profit from your loss. I will leave nothing for you. You will, you will gain nothing from your own labor and from your own land. Um, I will extract it all and, you know, and really leave you for dead. Right. I mean, it was as brutal as it comes that it was true, right? That was that the zero sum was true. And so the inverse had to be believed widely that, justice or liberation for people of color was going to come at the expense, not just of the white slaveholders or, or elite class, but, you know, the everyday white person. Um, and yet that story 
kept being reanimated and marketed to generation after generation, you know, even after slavery's end. It really was about job competition, right? It was about, you know, the immigrants are coming for, for your jobs. The Black people are coming up from the South and they're going to take your jobs. If they move into your neighborhood, your neighborhood will lose value, right? It's like anything for them is going to cost you. Now, what we know is that, in fact, these stark inequalities that we have is are costing the whole country, Um there was a Citigroup report this summer, very unlikely uh, place. Um, Citigroup released a report this summer saying that we had lost nearly $20 trillion in economic output over the past 20 years because of the racial economic divide. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco just recently issued a report saying just in 2019, the divide economically between white men and everybody else cost the country's economy um, nearly $2 trillion. And so it's clear that the zero sum is, is not true and that, in fact, inequalities that suppress the economic activity of you know millions of people are bad for our overall economy. And yet the zero sum worldview is not only still present, but it's being aggressively marketed day in and day out um, by the right wing, by folks like Donald Trump. That's sort of like his core way of seeing the world. Um, is this zero-sum hierarchy? I'm on top, you're on the bottom. I'm a winner, you're a loser. And what I found was not only is it not true in an economic sort of macro level, but when I would meet and talk to people who had rejected the zero-sum, um, particularly white people who had said, you know, I know the messages I've received about people of color and immigrants of color. I'm going to put them aside because I need something in my life and in our community and for my children that I simply can't get on my own. And if we're divided, as this, for example, fast food worker named Bridget told me, as long as we're divided, we're conquered. Um, you know, and and so... You, I began to see what I called these solidarity dividends, these things that we can gain um, through collective action across lines of race that we simply can't do on our own. Higher wages, cleaner air, better funded schools. Um, and that's really the new economic model that I think we need to pursue. The idea that it is only through solidarity. And it's funny, Joe Biden in his speeches has been calling it unity. And I think that's like triggering for people who are like, no, I want accountability. You know, I don't want unity with fascists. Right. But solidarity is a very old, you know, labor word that says my fight is your fight. Um, I met these workers in Mississippi who were trying to organize an auto plant and, and the union vote failed. It was largely um, because even though it was clear to everyone that, you know, you would get higher pay and benefits and job security, there was this racial divide. As this guy named Joey said, um, white workers are saying, if the blacks are for it, I'm against it. Um, but one of those workers was wearing a T-shirt that said, no one fights alone. And I just thought that was a beautiful, totally, um, you know, aspirational view of, of, of the fights that we fight, right? Because they're so individual, right? It's like me against my stack of bills, you know, late into the night trying to make ends meet. It's not, it's me trying to get another 
piece of education to get a better job, right? It's not saying, wait a second, this shouldn't be the case for any of us. We've got to unite and fight and demand more. Yeah, I mean, when you're with the people in Mississippi, when you're with the folks working on Stand Up KC or Fight for 15, these new kinds of labor movements, you know, they're, they're real, you know, striking moments in the book. And you quote this one fast food worker in Kansas City, Terrence Wise, uh, who tells you, I've seen the power of coming together and organizing and how it can make change. And I've definitely lived the life of when we were not organized and how life deteriorated over the years. So what, why is this happening now? I think um, in so many ways, this is happening now. This, this real, this resurgence of a working class identity that is multiracial, the, the Fight for 15 movement that you know united fast food workers and adjunct professors and retail workers. Um, you know, I think it's, it's good old fashioned grassroots organizing, right? It's, it's movement building. It's from Occupy through to the fight for 15, through to the teacher strikes, through to, um, you know, so much of what we've seen, the, the student debt issue sort of being really finally playing the, the role in politics that it should, given how widespread the pain is. We are definitely in a moment where, the economic bargain is just not adding up for people, for more and more people. And I do believe that these jobs for the most part are jobs that have are service jobs. They're service sector jobs. They rely on human skill and touch and interaction and people are feeling like there's no more to give, right? I grew up with this expression, you can't get blood from a turnip, right? There's just there's just no more, right? There's no more bottom. I looked deeply into what's going on in American manufacturing and just how much, obviously, we've lost over 40,000 factories, right? I mean, it's just, it's devastation, right? It's just absolute geographic devastation. You can drive through parts of the country where there's just huge, carcasses of factories and all the jobs and all the dreams that used to live inside them. And it's, it's really quite harrowing. Um, and then you also see the way in which the jobs that have replaced them that have remained are just getting, you know, worse and worse because we still have not raised the federal minimum wage over seven twenty-five an hour. The tipped minimum wage is $2 and 13 cents, right? This is, this is criminal, right? And, and in fact, it has its vestiges in slavery. Um, and we really need to see that when working people have been pushed and pushed and pushed, even in a society that overarchingly tells them, you know, you're paid what you're worth. There's a strict hierarchy of human value. You're at the bottom of the barrel. If you want to work your way up, great, but don't expect the bottom of that barrel to lift up, right? Um, people have, have had enough. And it's wonderful to see, um, you know, talking to some of these activists who are just ordinary people who had said, you know, I'm going to go to my work for eight, 10 hours a day, but I'm also going to pick my kids up, put them in bed, and then start writing posters and making calls to my coworkers to get them to show up on the picket line or get them to show up at a city council hearing to raise the minimum wage. And that's just, it's so inspiring. 
Is there like, is our sense of self-interest or for these people, is there a sense of self-interest changing? Like, is there a different notion of, of who you are to see yourself as being, you know, connected to all these other people? Is that a transformation that's happening? I think I mean, so. Give my example of, of the, I, the, the woman, you know, working at Wendy's, right? Yeah. Um, um, Bridget. Or do you, yeah, Bridget. Or do you think it's just like the, you know, the, this is about necessity. This is about like, I can't do shit on my own. I need, I need more to get what I need. Well, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so yeah. I think that necessity re- invites you to break out of old paradigms. So I think that's what's happening, right? I think it's both and. I think it's um, for Bridget, for example, right? So there's this white woman, um, Irish descent, grew up very much in a working class household that, you know, held a lot of anti-immigrant, you know, ironically, um, anti-immigrant and and anti-Black views. And she said, you know, when she was first approached um, by a coworker at Wendy's about joining with Stand Up Kansas City, which was the local group that ended up merging in with Fight for 15, she was skeptical. She says, I didn't think that things in my life would ever change. They weren't going to give $15 to a fast food worker. That was just insane to me. Um, Mm. And then she went to the first meeting and then she had um she saw this latina woman rise and describe her life right three children in a two-bedroom apartment with plumbing issues the feeling of being trapped in a life where she didn't have any opportunity to do anything better and bridget saw herself in this woman right she also had three kids she also felt trapped and it was this bridge right this bridge of human empathy across lines of race and it radicalized her and she said At that point, I decided that the only way we was going to fix it was if all of us came together. Whether we were white, brown, black, it didn't matter. You know, I mean, it's, that's what it is, right? It's, it's the individual necessity and the self-interest, but recognizing that the, you can't fight alone, right? That the only way to get there is through relationship. And then once you create those relationships, right? And then, you know, Bridget and Terrence and all of these people who were, spending this time really in the trenches together, then, you know, that created these bonds of solidarity that went beyond just, you know, the wage question. I talked to this worker in Mississippi who, um, this guy named Chip, who talked about what it was like when he would go to the little worker center in Mississippi where the workers who were pro-union would sort of come after their long shifts and get ready and organize and everything. And he said, I felt a sense of belonging, of love, of togetherness and friendship. We went through a lot together and did a lot together and, and accomplished a lot. I loved it. I loved going over there. It was utopia. Hmm. You know, and that's hmm. not just about his healthcare, right? And, you know, a few more dollars an hour. That's about feeling human connection, which is the exact opposite of what this brutal capitalistic economic system wants us to feel. Mm. There's a a scene in the book that really stood out to me and it was about you being in school and watching videos of the March on Washington, Martin Luther King, eyes on the prize and seeing footage of black people being attacked and jeered by white mobs attacked by dogs. And, you know, those movies are black and white in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You watch, there's no moral ambiguity. And you talk about how watching it in middle school, uh, somewhere around there, and a white classmate 
whispering to you, I wish I was black. And you know what? I, I, re- I remember that exact moment in my life and even that feeling. You know, mm. I remember a lot of kids saying that when we would watch those things because, you know, the, the way you talk about it makes it so clear. But it's, it's easier as a white person to wish I was black than to be honest about who my skin color and privilege most identifies me with in those movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really thought the way you, you, you talked about that and, and put that in context was, you know, it was very striking. Well, thank you for sharing that st- reflection. I mean, I, it, I don't have a lot of memories of middle school, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that was definitely one of them. And it's funny, you know, I've, I've talked to people about that memory or people who read early drafts of the book and some people react being like, did this really happen? Or like, Oh God, it's so embarrassing that she said that. And it's like, I'm glad you, you know, it didn't feel, but it felt right. Right. Like how could you not watch eyes on the prize, which is what we were watching, which is the just extraordinary required viewing documentary of the civil rights movement. How could you not watch that and think, yeah, I want to be the hero in the story of American social social progress. I don't want to think that it was my dad who was part of the mob. You know, I don't want to be on the side of the people who are so clearly wrong. And yet that recollection opens up a whole chapter, which was something of a departure in the book. The, chap- the book is really about the economic costs of racism. And yet this is one chapter that just goes where I think ultimately you have to go if you're talking about these issues, which is the morality, the psychology, the heart level stuff, even the spiritual stuff. Because ultimately an economy is guided by rules that we set in a society because we believe those rules are fair, right? It reflects our moral inclination around merit and fairness and desert. And so when the white majority in the United States has been taught for generations to distrust and disdain so many of their fellow Americans, when they've been taught this zero-sum racial hierarchy, um, it means that there's been a moral distortion, right? Because it's not true that whole groups of people people are better than others. Um, it's not true that because you have more money, you're a better human being. That's the lie that has been perpetuated in our society. And so it has distorted our our economic order to have that moral distortion. And it I lives mean, today, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, that you know, that I thought that chapter was was amazing. And I'm, I'm saying this as a, as a white man. Um, and, you know, I mean, the drain pools really shows how the cost of racism cut in every direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, a couple of quotes you have. You quote James Baldwin writing about white people. He says, what they see is a disastrous continuing present condition which menaces them and for which they bear an inescapable responsibility. But since in the main, they seem to lack the energy to change this condition, they would rather not be reminded of it. White Americans are dimly or vividly aware that the history they fed themselves is mainly a lie, but they do not know how to release themselves from it. And they suffer enormously from the resulting personal incoherence. And then you quote the writer Wendell Berry calling this the hidden wound. And that he says, "It's, it's a wound that he has borne all my life, always with the most delicate consideration for the pain I would feel if I were somehow forced to acknowledge it. 
there's a another quote from um, the the most quotable person in the world, Dr. Martin Luther King, who um, just every word he ever wrote was was a gift and a blessing. And um, he wrote in his final book, "Where Do We Go From Here: Chaos or Community," which is one of my favorite books. He wrote um, about that there are are laws that we can change as he was, you know, in the vanguard of changing in terms of our, our, our laws around civil rights and voting rights act. And then there are the laws written on the heart. And, you know, I, in some ways I wish I had named the chapter, um, the law written on the heart because it's, it's really about the deep story, right? The laws can change Brown v. Board of education can be a unanimous Supreme Court decision saying that separate is never equal and that we must integrate. And yet over 50 years later, we are still in many places as segregated as we were when it was the explicit law of the land because the esteem in which millions of white parents hold black and brown children has not changed enough, right? And there's this still this this view that that white schools are the best schools and this um, unwillingness, again, somewhat to Baldwin's quote, to face why that might possibly, why the disparities that they see in the quality of the building and all of that, that seems so obvious, right? That they, of course, want to move away from, from black and brown schools is that we fund our schools based on property values and property taxes. And for most of the 20th century, Black people were explicitly denied the right to own property because the system of mortgage finance that we created in the New Deal era explicitly barred Black neighborhoods from getting mortgage financing that would be backed by the government. And so if you look at the full story, if you allow yourself to know the history that is not a lie, as Baldwin says, it becomes clear that this thing that you think is just your self-interest in taking care of your child and giving your child the best possible education is itself a profound cost of racism. And I'm heartened by the fact that there is so much intellectual curiosity today among white people to learn a new history. Obviously, conservatives are, you know, fighting like hell to maintain the lies, right? That ridiculous 1776 commission and the laws that we see being introduced in and even passed in some places to ban the 1619 project as anything that people would read in school. I mean, just crazy fascistic stuff, right? But it's because there is a movement in this country to learn the truth, to know that our country's struggle has been more brutal and more beautiful at once than, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, right? Um, and that we, we owe it to ourselves to know where we sit, to know why the world is as it is so that we can change it. The smallest word in the title of your book is the word us, but it's actually quite a loaded and interesting word to think about. Mm. Um, how, how do you define, say for yourself, what is us for you? You know, who, who are you thinking about as being us? Well, Yancy, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I'm a really unlikely patriot. Um, 
you know, I was born in the Midwest and, um, you know, I just, I have this feeling that there's just a deep, rough goodness about this project that has been so flawed and yet holds so many ideals in it, this project called America. And my optimism about this country comes from the fact that we were founded as a nation of many nations. Obviously, a brutal hierarchy was mapped onto that diversity, but that was a, you know, a, a mistake, right? Um, and that was wrong, a wrong that can still be righted. And today we have someone living in the United States from every community on the globe. And we are soon to become a nation with no racial majority. And it feels like if in this new world, and I, it's the United States, but it's also Canada. It's also all of the new world, right? It's this, the, the, the places where there is this huge throwing together, this collision of cultures, any place like that in the world to me is has the potential to be this emblematic aspirational version of us right that the idea of that perhaps the proximity of so much difference can help us reveal our common humanity mm. that's what's exciting to me about this place where i've decided to to stay even though i love other countries and you know my husband would love us to leave um this place where i was born the descendant of enslaved people the place where i've decided to stay and serve right my really i i do feel like i have work to do to help us get closer to our, our ideals and to help alleviate some of the suffering that too many people have needlessly the mm. us is rooted in the black experience for me but it's, there are um, profoundly universal um, aspects of life that have been revealed by the way that, you know, white supremacy has treated black people um, and what's been revealed in the, you know, in the, in the crucible of, of black life in America. Mm -hmm. my, my last question, when leaving Demos, you talked about feeling that the tools of economic policy research were inadequate. Mm. After, after this book, now here with the Biden administration, do you feel like we have tools that are less inadequate, are adequate? Like what, 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 what do you think about uh, looking forward? I mean, in many ways, now is the time for economic policy, right? Now we've got someone in the White House who cares about what's happening to working class people and middle class people who is breaking with the bipartisan orthodoxy to care about government budgets more than families' budgets, who in fact, um, and this made me just so humbled and, and amazed, 
used the framework of rejecting the zero sum and talking about the cost of racism to everyone and how we will be more prosperous um, when we have dismantled systemic racism in his first speech on racial equity. Um, So now is the time, yes, when a multiracial anti-racist majority has not only put Biden-Harris in the White House, but also in the most unlikely turn of events in the world, put a Black pastor and a Jewish filmmaker into the Senate from Georgia, um, now that there is really this multiracial coalition that I sort of wished for in writing the book, that I saw signs of when writing the book, that has changed the history of this country that has allowed us to have a governing majority of people that are interested in governing and addressing some of our biggest problems. And so actually, honestly, now is the time for economic policy and research because it won't be falling on deaf ears. And and there is a willingness to talk about the way that racialization has impacted economic policy. And and it's a very exciting time, actually, to be in this conversation and to pick up those tools again, perhaps. Awesome. Heather, I can't wait to see you in Brooklyn, maybe sometime later this year, fingers crossed. And the book is incredible. And, and I'm just so I'm so happy for you and just so proud of, of what you've created here. It's it's tremendous. Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the ideas that you're putting into the world that I think are very, very consonant and resonant with um, what I found um, with the solidarity dividend and the idea of mutual interest and getting beyond self-interest and redefining it. It's really very exciting. Thank you so much.